As we begin this morning, I don't often call your attention to the art that's on my like welcome slide, but here we have uh, something that's entitled Raise Up by Hank Willis Thomas. Um, this particular one, I think, travels, but uh, I first saw it on display at the National Museum for Peace and Justice. I was not yet familiar with Hank Willis Thomas's work, and I saw this particular piece and was really captivated by it and saw another piece of his that was at the Legacy Museum and was also captivated by it. And I did not know anything about the artist, but I was with an artist friend and she told me, oh, well then you must like Hank Willis Thomas because both of the pieces you've commented on are Hank Willis Thomas pieces. Uh, and wanted to talk about that because as I was thinking about uh, this weekend, and tomorrow, Juneteenth, that reminded me of that trip to the National Museum for Peace and Justice that I went on on Juneteenth in uh, 2019. Juneteenth, as we know, is a celebration of the emancipation that finally came to those who were enslaved in the United States. We know that in January 1st, 1963, not 19, 1863, it might feel like 1963, uh, President Lincoln uh, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, thus uh, emancipating those who were enslaved in Confederate-controlled territories. Um, but it was really not until April 9th, 1865, when the Civil War came to an end, uh, that that really became more enforceable. And it was not until June 19, 1865, so even a couple of months and some change after the end of the Civil War, that General Gordon Granger reached Galveston, Texas, and was able to proclaim uh, to the last part of the Confederacy, those who were enslaved in Texas, uh, that indeed they were emancipated and no longer uh, needed to continue to be enslaved. And so it was a time of incredible celebration here in Texas, there were over a quarter of a million people um, who were enslaved at that time. Uh, many of them, almost half, uh, lived in counties near around College Station, a very fertile uh, area of Texas in terms of agriculture. So that was why many people had been enslaved there. And then, as we know, migrated to Houston, to the Metroplex, to Austin, other places um, beyond that. But part of Besides the fact that I was at the National Museum for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum on Juneteenth several years ago, part of why I reflected on it was their mission. Uh, they say, and I'm reading now from uh, their writing, the story is that slavery evolved. To justify the brutal, dehumanizing institution of slavery in America, its advocates created a myth of racial difference. Stereotypes and false characterizations of black people were created to defend their permanent enslavement as most necessary to the well-being of the Negro. An act of kindness that reinforced white supremacy, the formal abolition of slavery did nothing to overcome the harmful ideas created to defend it. And so slavery did not end it. It evolved. And now, the contrast here that you can see of uh, this artwork of some Africans who've been enslaved. And then in the background, there is the monument to the National Museum for Peace and Justice, uh, which is all about acknowledging those who were lynched uh, throughout the centuries. It goes on, still reading from their work. 
In the decades that followed, these beliefs in racial hierarchy took new expression in convict leasing, lynching, and other forms of racial terrorism that forced the exodus of millions of black Americans to the North and West, where the myth of racial difference manifested in urban ghettos and generational poverty. Racial subordination was codified and enforced by the violence of Jim Crow and segregation as the nation and its leaders allowed black people to be burdened, beaten, and marginalized throughout the 20th century. And this particular picture that I took uh, is acknowledging the three people that we know of, uh, whose names we do not know, unknown, who were lynched here in Travis County uh, and memorializing them. But they go on to say, progress towards civil rights for African Americans was made in the 1960s, but the myth of racial inferiority was not eradicated. Black Americans were vulnerable to a new era of racial bias and abuse of power wielded by our contemporary criminal justice system. Mass incarceration has had devastating consequences for people of color. At the dawn of the 21st century, one in three black boys are projected to go to jail or prison in his lifetime. And so part of what the Legacy Museum and the National Monument for Peace and Justice is trying to show uh, and make the case for is that uh, the, the burden of slavery, though we do celebrate joyfully and joyously emancipation, uh, has in many ways just evolved and become more insidious uh, in, the way, in its impact on African Americans and how that has evolved from slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration throughout the years. Which leaves me with a couple questions. How do we pivot from experiencing liberation, thinking of that emancipation, and for us and perhaps as a community, as a culture, as a country, to forming a community of sustained practice of love and liberation? What happens when others interject hatred of a community and interfere with its liberties and flourishing? Uh, and as a person who has multiple identities who intersect, intersect as someone who is Mexican-American, African-American, and is a gay man. I think of all the different ways that whether it is trying to be hard on our southern border or whether it is the perpetual uh, fears and boogeyman of CRT and what is that doing, this thing that doesn't really seem to have any name, but we're trying to systematically destroy any teaching of a history. And without a common history, we can't move forward, right? If, if we can't acknowledge that we all have a shared past and understanding of what happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly, then we don't have an ability corporately, communally to move forward. There can be no reconciliation without a common past. And there are those who are trying to eradicate any ability for us to know the history of our common past. And also thinking of the attacks that the queer community is under uh, both just in our community and legislatively what is happening and thinking about uh, this sense of, uh, at times, a, a sense of emancipation and liberation, but also feeling under attack. And when I looked at our text in the lectionary today, uh, we have a passage from Exodus that we're going to spend a good deal of time in. But also the gospel passage uh, is a passage where Jesus is talking to his gathered disciples and is 
encouraging them to go, to be emissaries, to be ambassadors, to spread the good news. And his good news, as we know, the gospel of Luke and in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount is all about liberation. It's all about upending injustice. It's all about inviting those who have not been welcomed at the table to not only have a place at the table, but to find their voice there. That Jesus is doing this work of sending people out, but he's acknowledging it's not going to be received well. Though you were going with this message of love and liberation, you are going to find resistance. And so thinking about Jesus uh, more than a thousand years after this Exodus event, depending on how you'd look at the chronology of it, um, speaking to a community that still finds itself trying to live into and up to its greatest ideals of emancipation and liberation. And I think as Americans, whatever the different hues that we carry, whatever the different identities that we understand ourselves to be a part of, we collectively sense this too, that uh, we have experienced some level of emancipation, but we are still trying to form a more perfect union. And so our passage begins in Exodus chapter four. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought, to you, brought you to myself. Here we see a quick summary of the Exodus. That's uh, Exodus 19.4 is often considered just to be a summary verse of the entire Exodus event. And there's nothing, Egypt is named, but there's nothing obviously particularly wrong with Egypt except for in this particular region, Egypt was the dominant superpower of the day. And that, since it would be no different from ancient Babylon or Greece or Rome or in a little bit more recent times, France and Britain, or even more recent times, Russia, America, or China, right? Egypt is just a superpower that is able to wield its empire in ways that cause indifference and injustice to the plight of those who are marginalized and oppressed. And what did Yahweh do to the empire? Yahweh humbled Pharaoh who understood his power to be absolute and divine, reappropriated a portion of the wealth of the Egyptians to those who were being liberated as they were going, washed away the militant army who dared to appropriate the safe passage offered to the Hebrews, nonviolently fleeing their own armed superpower. And notably, there is no lament over the violence attributed to God in this passage, uh, both in the Exodus event and in uh, the passage through the deliverance of the Red Sea. The next part of this verse says, and I bore you on eagle's wings. Here God is envisioned as a great eagle full of dynamic power and speed. This eagle eye vision that though it's hovering far above the earth can see something and swoop down and pluck it up. And then the Hebrew understanding, this was not uh, the perilous sense of, and now we are dinner, but this understanding that God who might transcend us and sometimes feel like is way out there can still see our plight, can still hear our cry, still knows our heart when we struggle with the tensions of injustice and inequality and that God is able to swoop down and pick up those who have been so marginalized and bring them, lift them up to the heights. It's a journey that the Hebrew people have gone on with God and the skies that they have flown with God have not been such 
friendly skies. They have experienced challenges and tribulations and setbacks as a community as they have tried to live into their emancipation in the Hebrew Bible story. Um, This is a trip from Egypt to Sinai, but in some sense, the ultimate destination isn't the mountain of God, but to God's presence, God's self, as God ends the passage saying, and I brought you to myself. You were liberated from oppression. You were liberated from violence. You were liberated from evil and sin so that you could be a community gathered around me, living out peace and justice with one another, knowing the fullness of what it looks like to embody the way of Yahweh with one another. This lack of friendly skies can perhaps lead us to the practice of lament. And Soong Chung Ra says of lament, it's not simply the presentation of a list of complaints, nor merely the expression of sadness over difficult circumstances. Lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. The hope of lament is that God would respond to human suffering that is wholeheartedly communicated through lament. When is the time you remembering feeling God's love and divine wonder? This Exodus 4 passage encourages the people to look back to remember a time when they had experienced freedom, when they had experienced joy and liberation and life and love and allowed it to fill them to where they even, in the sacred scripture, it erupts after emancipation into song and celebration. When's been a time like that in your life when you have been so captured by God's love or divine wonder? How might past experiences of love and awe nurture us in times of distress? How might recalling those memories not be a way to numb us from the pain or the stress or the challenges we experience, but be a way to center us, to ground us, to offer us hope, to orient us in disorienting and chaotic times? In Exodus chapter four, or Exodus chapter 19, rather, verse five, We continue, now, therefore, if you obey my voice, this is God speaking, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. We move from the past tense of verse four's remembering to the present now. And the word for obey that we find here is the same Hebrew word Shema that we find in Deuteronomy, that word that means hear, hear, O Israel. The idea is is not about some rigid, concrete, static obedience that is unquestioned to something that was written thousands of years ago, but it is this act of listening to the divine voice to listening to the divine voice in community with one another and then to responding to that divine voice. This is the idea that we hear, that we listen. It shifts our whole understanding from some spiritual certification or leveling up you might do because you were the most obedient of all the people. I once played that game pretty well. Um, And instead frees us into this active, dynamic, communal, listening, 
and interpreting and responding. Um, Meredith Miller was talking about how you would use the word obey with children and reminds us that there are other ways that we can understand that like friends. God has dreamed of being friends with us. It's God's favorite and a big part of what Jesus wanted to show about who God is, that for children, a friend is something that's much more concrete than many of the other theological concepts we might try to give them about God. Or also the language of follow. Life with Jesus is a little like the game, follow the leader. I follow because I believe that Jesus leads to life or the idea of trust. I trust God because of who God is. And as you get to know God, I hope you discover that they are trustworthy too. That there are even ways that we can talk to our children about obedience, but in reframing it in one of these languages that help us to more understand it, not as this just do what you're told unquestioningly, no matter what violence that may render to you or others, but instead invites us into dynamic participation. And so in deliverance in the now, where in your life or world do you need God to notice suffering or injustice? How might you lament with loved ones and trusted community? What would you hope divine mercy and peacemaking might start to look like where you are, where we are? Going on in verse 5, in Exodus, it says, you shall be my treasured possession and a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Israel is highlighted among all the nations which belong to God. But it is this understanding that God is global. But, but God is sort of saying, like, you, you were my, my firstborn. And so I love all my children. I'm an only child, so I've not had to wrestle with this. I, I know what it means to have all the love of all my parents. But there is this sense of like, you know, you're, but you're, you're my firstborn. So there's a sort of special, there was a time when it was just us, you know, before all the other kids came, uh, et cetera. And we had this special favorite, love all the kids, but you are the favored in that sort of sense. Uh, this is probably what was understood uh, by the Hebrew people uh, of this treasured possession and the special relationship. And as priests, they are to mediate God's presence. They are to be, we are to be the people that when God look at us, say, how do I know what God is like? Well, I look at this community. I look at this people and I see the character, the quality of God's liberating love embodied in them. Shifting now to our Matthew passage in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, we're just doing that one verse. Uh, it is this point where Jesus is sending his disciples, his followers, his apprentices. They're going to go into the Judean countryside and try to be ambassadors of this liberating love. And so Jesus says, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus anticipates that this nonviolent community centered around the forgiving prince of peace will be juxtaposed over and against a world seduced and secured by violence. Jesus' followers will be known as serene sheep in a wild wolf world. And so there's this image of eagles that we've already been given, that God knows us, can see us, and will uplift us in oppression and injustice and pain and suffering. Then there's this image of sheep 
that we are the followers of Jesus. We are listening to God's voice. And then that is further hashed out with the advice, the admonition to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Here, we could see both that serpents were actually understood, and it's probably why a serpent shows up in the Garden of Eden imagery. Uh, serpents were understood to be really wise and cunning and crafty, not necessarily evil or sinful, but just very creative, kind of knowing how to get you to, to where they're wanting to go. Master negotiators, if you will. So this is probably why we see the first couple, Adam and Eve, uh, in a conversation with the serpent in the earliest text of Genesis. And Jesus is actually lauding this. He's not saying like, you know, in this case, serpent, bad, evil, wrong. He's like, actually, you guys could use a little bit more of this cunning creativity. Like get that, some of that with you. If you're gonna be in this vulnerable position of being my nonviolent ambassadors in a world that is seduced and secured by violence, then you're gonna have to learn what it is to be crafty, to be creative, to be clever, so that you can make your way through this still hopefully anchored to my love and my nonviolent forgiveness, but also still resisting and opposing uh, to the world seduced by violence that this is a bankrupt way of living and continuing to be. It reminds me of the artist that we talked about or that I mentioned earlier, Hank Willis Thomas. I have a couple pictures um, from uh, one of his art books. This first one uh, is called The Cotton Bowl. Uh, in American college football, there is a bowl game called The Cotton Bowl. This is probably the first church context that I felt like I needed to explain that just in case. Um, And so we have juxtaposed on the left, someone who's picking cotton, something both my father and my mother, uh, my mother who's Hispanic, my father who's African-American did as uh, preteens and teenagers growing up. But we know also for generations, uh, that is something that has been done into enslavement. And then juxtaposed on the right side, a football player who's on the line of scrimmage in a very similar stance. And you can wonder what the conversation might be as they look into each other's eyes and what sense of hope and progress there might be and also what sense of what really has changed here and what is the relationship of what's going on in this. Uh, another image that showed up uh, in Pearl, Mississippi in 2016 by Hank Willis Thomas, Make America Great Again. And you can see, yeah, well, you may not be able to see because it's a little bit harder, <laughs> farther away from you, but their backdrop of it is a photograph of uh, Selma, Alabama and what happened at the Edmund Pettus Bridge there. And so there are the nonviolent protesters on one side and there is the empire armed and ready and we know ultimately will violently attack them and it is this hearkening to sort of remind us when we say, make America great again, whose history are we remembering and who gets left out and what injustice is allowed to silently continue if we are trying to go backwards rather than forward. Uh, probably most famously in 2020, um, as we were in this so-called racial reckoning that was happening in the United States, um, Hank Willis Thomas's work was featured on the Human Rights Campaign's uh, DC headquarters. It's the largest installment where he has this all lies matter, right? He's just simply erased the V 
and trying to uncover uh, the insidiousness of those who would try to, well, no, it's not Black Lives Matter, it's all lives matter. And then this further advocation that Black Lives Matter and that Black trans lives matter. But just the simple creative erasure of the V begins to cause us to question, yeah, what, what lies matter that we are just allowing to perpetuate, to be said around us. And then we say, I don't want to cause too much fuss around the family reunion, so I'm just going to let them say that. But what, don't those lies matter that they're saying, that they're speaking, and what's the injustice and evil, and what marginalized communities are going to suffer for it if we allow those to perpetuate? Uh, finally, in verse, verse 16, we're also told to be innocent as doves. We've also seen doves in Genesis text. It is after this violent, chaotic flood that sin seems to have introduced into the world, but also troublingly seems to have come from the presence of God, uh, at least as the text remembers it. Um, but there is this dove that once the world has been uh, flooded, that comes, right? And it's offering to the people in the boat, Noah and his family, the sense that a new beginning is possible. Peace will happen. And as I've shared when I preach on this passage, I think the beautiful image of the rainbow that, you know, there are some of those, especially during Pride Month, who want to remind us that the rainbow was originally God's, which I'm all for and love that and believe that. And I would say that I believe the rainbow is God's way of hanging up the violence. It is like there is this divine bow and arrow that God is saying, I'm no longer going to wield this. I'm hanging it up on the mantle, on the wall, and never again will violence be the way that we move forward. And so for those of us who are addicted to violence as our means of securing our safety and well-being in the world, the rainbow is a reminder that we should never in action or in words do violence to anyone, but particularly to those who are marginalized and oppressed. It is a beautiful symbol indeed. In Across the Spider-Verse, we have this conversation with Rio and Miles. Rio is Miles' mother. And this isn't too much of a spoiler because this conversation is in all the trailers. Um, but she says, for years, I've been taking care of this little boy, making sure he is loved, that he feels like he belongs whenever he wants to be. He wants to go out into the world and do great big things. And then she says to him, wherever you go from here, you must promise to take care of that little boy for me. Make sure he never forgets where he came from and never doubts that he is loved and he never lets anyone tell him that he doesn't belong there. You gotta promise, Smiles. Rio realizes that her son is growing up and that the way she was with him in infancy and as toddler and in preschool and in elementary isn't going to be the way she can be with him as he is an adolescent and becoming a young man. And so she wants to root him to his deepest identity so that as he is making his way in a world that will want to question and reframe his identity for him, he can be anchored to that love and belonging that will help to guide him as he has to navigate more and more on his own, that he will not lose sight of his true self and of his flourishing. And I can imagine in our text that as Jesus talks about being innocent as doves, it is the same sense of reminding us that we have this belonging 
this love, this anchor of peace that God will never do violence toward us, that we are each and every one of us created in the image of God. And we are to boldly and proudly live that out. And we are to join arms with one another to do the same and to lift each other up because each of us is inextricably linked to one another. And so some questions around cunning childlikeness and wise wonder, how might you juxtapose the violence of this world with the peace of Christ? Who is someone wise you might choose to learn from or to emulate their example? It could be someone in your life. It might be a historical figure. It could be a saint in the pantheon of Christian saints or other religious figures or superheroes. It might be your favorite musical artist. I don't know. What is a practice that can anchor you to your identity as God's beloved in times of turmoil and change? And finally, how might we practice creative hope and beloved solidarity this week? There is a book that I'm not going to have time to get to that is called Mindful of Race, and it's beautifully talking through uh, what it looks like from a purpose of meditation by this Black queer woman, Ruth King. Uh, And she does say, and I just love this brief quote, Whenever we're going to talk about race, we have to consider discomfort a core competency for waking up about racism. And she goes through this practice of reign, of what it means to recognize, to allow, to investigate, and to name uh, our experiences that come up for us, whatever our race might be, when we are dealing with injustice around racial identity and how we can name that. And so I would just... Uh, encourage if that's something you're interested in exploring, you considering that. She also has videos on YouTube that, of course, you could check out first before you decide to uh, purchase her book. And so I'd like to close our time in a prayer that is uh, the Lord's Prayer, but is an understanding of it through the Austin, not Austin, <laughs> the uh, New Zealand prayer book. Uh, and so though we'll pray it in its more traditional form in just a few moments. Uh, this is, I think, for today, a beautiful understanding of it as well. And so I'm just going to pray this over us. Eternal spirit, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver, source of all that is and that shall be, father and mother of us all, loving God in whom is heaven. The hallowing of your name echo through the universe. The way of your justice be followed by the peoples of the world. Your heavenly will be done by all created beings. Your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope here on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. In the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and rest, test, strengthen us. From trials too great to endure, spare us. From the grip of all that is evil, free us. For you reign in the glory of the power that is love, now and forever. Amen.